ready to take a ride. Grab your coffee and strap yourself in. If you listen, I can hear God's plan. Because the show is about to begin. You're listening. You're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. All right. Welcome to the Omega Man Radio Show. This is a live show. Today is July 15th. And uh, we're going to have a special guest, pastor, evangelist, missionary, William Lau, of the Elijah Challenge. And this is a program you do not want to miss. Live teaching on the Elijah Challenge. It's not too late to pick up the phone and call a friend, call a family member, have them tune in to this show. And uh, the website for Pastor William Lau is the Elijah Challenge. Dot org. Bookmark that and uh, go over to the ministry website, get on their mailing list, go through their training materials. Uh, it's going to change your life. So without further ado, let me go to the phones and bring on Pastor Lau. Pastor Thank Lau, you. are you with me? Yes, I'm right here, Shannon. Praise God, brother. God bless you for coming on tonight. Oh, thank you so much for this honor. I look forward to it. Brother, what I like to do is uh, typically start out the uh, programs with prayer. So uh, I would be honored if you would uh, have prayer, and then I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Yes. All right. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And tonight, Father, we ask that you would teach us your word and equip us, Lord, to fulfill the Great Commission. We ask, Lord, that through your Spirit you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts, Lord, to understand and receive your word. And we pray, Lord, that through this training, Father, you would enable us to obey your command, Father, to make disciples of all nations, to fulfill the Great Commission. We ask you to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may understand your word and then apply it, Lord, effectively for the sake of the Great Commission. We thank you, Father, that you hear our prayer, Lord, for we pray in accordance with your will. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen, brother. The mic is yours. Okay. Thank you, Shannon. We're going to start with the Great Commission, and we're going to ask, why is it that the church has failed to complete it after 2,000 years? As I see it, as I go around the world teaching in many different churches, I see that the church is generally complacent. And then there is a lack of holiness in the church. And then I see that the church has not really been trained to fulfill the Great Commission. I see in the church much fear and doubt in this area. And this fear and doubt which has resulted in the lack of demonstration of God's power to the lost. If we want to demonstrate God's power to the lost so that they will be convinced that our God is the only true God, number one, we must get rid of this fear and doubt that we see in the church almost universally. I believe that we are in the last days and that Christ wants to return. And therefore, we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. And therefore, I believe that the Lord is going to restore power and boldness to the Church of Jesus Christ in order for us to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, this will require believers, disciples, this will require the Church to go far out of her comfort zone, far, far out of her comfort zone, and to walk on water. And not all believers will step out of the boat and will walk on water successfully. But I do believe that those who are tuning in, who are listening right now, those 
of you who are listening, you are hungry and that you will be able to step out of the boat and walk on water successfully. And you will need great perseverance and determination to obey the Lord in this way. Great perseverance and determination. It's not going to be easy, but it can be done. So, let's begin with Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. We can turn to that in our Bibles. This is at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. There's a prophecy made by the prophet which says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, what does this prophecy mean? Well, it speaks of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, that refers to the coming of the Messiah. Notice that it is referred to as that great and dreadful day, the coming of the Messiah. And it says that before that great and dreadful day, Elijah will be sent. So, let's try to understand what this means. What did Elijah preach when he came? Well, we know that when Elijah came, nearly the entire nation of Israel had backslidden. And these were God's people, the Israelites, but they had backslidden and they were worshipping a false god whose name was Baal. And Elijah was raised up to preach repentance to them, to bring them back to the Lord. So we're going to look for a moment at the ministry of Elijah during the reign of Ahab. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 20. 1 Kings 18 and verse 20. It says, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. The Israelites, God's people, they were deceived, they were confused, they didn't know who the one true God was. It's very much the same today when we go out and preach the gospel. People are confused, they are deceived, they don't know who the one true God is. Times have not changed since the time of Elijah thousands of years ago. And so scripture tells us, tells us that Elijah issued a challenge to the servants of the false god Baal. And I believe all of us know what that challenge was. Elijah said to the servants of Baal, he said, You take a bull and cut that bull into pieces and prepare a sacrifice to your God. But do not set fire to it. And I will do the same thing for the Lord. I'll take a bull, I'll cut it into pieces, but I will not set fire to it. Then, 1 Kings 18, verse 24, verse 24 now. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, how many of you would like to preach the gospel like that? Now, I'm sure that there are quite a few of you who are listening to me who think this is really cool and you would like to preach, to preach the gospel in this way. And my question is, why don't we preach the gospel in this way? Today, hardly anyone does this. Usually when we preach the gospel, it's with words only. There's no challenge like this. Why don't we preach the gospel like this? Well, if you think about it, it's because we have the spirit of fear and doubt. In the back of our minds, we have this fear. What if there's no miracle? What if nothing happens? We're going to look really bad, and surely they're not going to believe if nothing happens. See, this is the spirit of 
doubt, the spirit of fear that I see rampant and universal in the church wherever I, wherever I go. Hardly no one preaches the gospel the way Elijah did. And so the first thing is that we have to acknowledge that we have this fear, we have this doubt. What if nothing happens when we pray to God to demonstrate that he is alive, that he is the only true God? And so we're going to deal with this spirit of fear and this spirit of doubt. It must go. Now, let's resume the reading of the scripture. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Now, these were the Israelites. These were the backsliders. They said, hey, what you say is good. Let's do it. That's a great idea. We would like to know which is the one true God. Go ahead and do it. You see, the world wants to see signs and wonders. The world wants to see the demonstration, the evidence that our God is the only true God, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. The problem is the church. We are afraid to pray to the Lord to provide the evidence to the world that indeed he is the one true God. It's because we have the spirit of fear and doubt. That's why we don't do this. The world wants to see these miracles. And so we know that the challenge proceeded. The servants of Baal, they went first. They got a bowl. They cut it into pieces. And then they cried out to Baal. And we know that nothing happened. They prayed for hours and hours. Still nothing happened. They began to cut themselves with swords until their blood flowed. Still nothing happened. Baal was not able to answer their prayer. Finally, they gave up. Now, I do believe that Baal existed. Perhaps he was some very powerful territorial spirit. But at that moment, the Lord would not allow him to lift a finger. He could not do a thing. And so finally, his servants gave up. And then 1 Kings 18, same chapter now, verse 16. It says, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Now, what kind of spirit does it take for someone to do this? Well, this is the spirit of extreme boldness. It takes extreme boldness to stand in front of a crowd of thousands of people and to do something like this. Now, this is the kind of boldness that God is restoring to the church. When God restores the spirit and power of Elijah to his people, this is the kind of boldness that we are going to receive. Now, of course, it's not enough simply to be bold. One also has to be, well, there has to be a miracle. There has to be a manifestation of God's power. In the past, some of us have been really bold, but nothing has happened, and we simply made fools out of ourselves. And so the spirit of Elijah should be not only the spirit of boldness, but it must also be the spirit of manifest power power that can be seen by the lost. Now, going on to verse 38, it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And so God heard the prayer of his servant Elijah, and he sent the fire. Visible fire descended from heaven and burned up the sacrifice in sight of the Israelites. And so we see that the spirit of Elijah is not only the spirit of boldness, but the spirit of manifest power. 
This is the spirit that God is restoring to his church during these last days. Verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, what happened? Well, after the Israelites saw the visible demonstration of God's power, then they repented and acknowledged him. Before that, they would not. Even after three and a half years of drought and famine, they would still not acknowledge the Lord. But after they saw the visible demonstration of his power in response to the prayer of Elijah, did they acknowledge the Lord? Now, could it be the same with God's people today? Today, there are many people who call themselves, who profess to be God's people, who profess to be Christians, but many of them are backsliding, many of them have idols in their hearts, they love the world, they are friends with the world, they are idolaters. Could it be the same with God's people today, that they need to see manifestations of God's power before they will really come back to Him and acknowledge Him? And I believe the answer is yes. In conclusion, we say that the spirit of Elijah is the spirit of boldness to proclaim the kingdom of God. It is the spirit of power, power which is manifest and can be demonstrated to the lost. And the spirit of Elijah is also the spirit of holiness. We preach repentance from idolatry, repentance from loving the world and being friends with the world. We preach repentance from sin. Now, what is the purpose of the coming of the spirit of Elijah? Well, number one, it is to prepare God's people for the coming of the Messiah. We know that in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, we know that before the first coming of the Messiah 2,000 years ago, that the spirit and power of Elijah came upon John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And when John appeared, he preached repentance to the Israelites to make ready a people prepared for the Lord, to prepare the Israelites, God's people, for the coming of the Messiah. And in the same way, I believe we are in those days preceding the second coming of the Messiah. And I believe that the prophecy from Malachi will be fulfilled a second time. And this time, when the spirit and power of Elijah is restored to the church, we are going to be preaching the gospel with great power, with great boldness. Number one, for the purpose of preparing God's people, God's backslidden people for the coming of the Messiah, so that they may repent and get their houses in order for the coming of the Messiah. And number two, the second purpose of the spirit of Elijah is to fulfill the great commission to the Gentiles. By Gentiles, I'm talking about non-Christian people groups like Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, those who worship idols, those who believe in witchcraft, those who never heard the gospel. So the spirit of Elijah will be restored to prepare God's people for the coming of Jesus Christ and to fulfill the great commission to the Gentiles. Only then will the end come. Now let's go to the New Testament. Jesus actually used the approach of Elijah to prove that he was the Son of God. We note that Elijah used a miracle to prove the identity of the one true God. And he did it in a very dramatic way. And Jesus actually used this very same approach to prove that he was the Son of God. Let's look at John chapter 20 and verse 30. John 20 and verse 30. It says, 
Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. We know that Jesus performed many miraculous signs. I believe the majority of them were, in fact, miraculous healings. Now, why did Jesus perform so many miraculous healings? Was it simply because he felt sorry for those who were suffering from physical disease? Actually, no. Let's look at verse 31, and we will see the primary reason for the miraculous signs performed by Jesus. Verse 31 says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The reason why the miracles that Jesus performed are written in the book of John is so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that they would believe on him and by believing on him have life in his name. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus healed the sick to prove his identity as the Son of God, the only way to the Father. And so Jesus used the approach of Elijah to prove his identity as the Son of God. Let's proceed on now to healing, healing. Now, the Lord heals the sick in different ways, of course. Now, our approach to healing in this basic training will be specific to the task in which we are involved. As an example, let's take the gift of healing, the very well-known gift of healing. Now, according to Scripture, the gift of healing is primarily for ministering to sick believers and therefore can be manifest in gatherings of believers. Now, how do we know that this is true? Well, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is the chapter that talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we will find out the primary purpose of these nine supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 4. Paul says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Now, verse 7, skipping to verse 7. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, according to verse 7, these gifts of the Spirit are given for the common good. Now, the common good of what? Well, obviously, the common good of the body of Christ. The whole chapter talks about the body of Christ. So, therefore, these nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the common good of the body of Christ, are for building up believers, building up the church. Verse 8, it says, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. So in verse 8 we see two gifts of the Spirit, message of wisdom, message of knowledge. In verse 9 we see two more gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 says, To another faith by that same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. There we see in verse 9 listed gifts of healing. And all of these gifts, all nine of them, are for building up the body of Christ. Therefore, we would conclude that the gift of healing is primarily for ministering to sick believers in the context of building up the body of Christ. That is the primary purpose of the gift of healing, ministering to sick believers. And it makes sense that these gifts are often manifest, therefore, in gatherings of believers. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14 now, chapter 14 and verse 12. Look what Paul says. He says, So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. 
So we know it is clear that the gift of healing is primarily for building up the church, for ministering to sick believers. And this, of course, is well and good. However, there is something more foundational than the gift of healing for ministering to the church. As important as it is, there is something more foundational. And I mean healing the sick to demonstrate to the lost that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is a different task. This is a different context. This is no longer the context of ministering to the church, of building up the church, of ministering to sick believers, but this is healing the sick in the context of evangelism, to demonstrate to the lost that our God is the only true God and that Jesus is the only way to Him. Our task here in this uh, basic training is to learn to minister healing in the context of proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And this is precisely what Jesus and his early disciples did. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he did not come to build up the body of Christ. No, there was no body of Christ when he came. He came to save the lost. And that's why he performed so many miracles, to demonstrate to the lost that he was, in fact, the only way to the Father that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Therefore, let's first study how Jesus ministered healing to the sick in the Gospels, because his context, his task, is identical to ours. So, instead of studying Reverend so-and-so, some famous healing evangelist, we're going to study Jesus Christ himself. I think it's much better to study Jesus than some man, however famous he may be. What we are going to do is simply fulfill John 14, 12. John chapter 14, verse 12, which is familiar to many believers. There Jesus promises, Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Anyone who believes in Jesus will do the works that he has been doing. And what did Jesus do? Jesus came to preach the gospel. He came to heal the sick. He came to cast out demons. He came to make disciples. And those of us who have faith in him will do those very works. We will preach the gospel. We will heal the sick. We will cast out demons. We will make disciples. So let's examine how Jesus healed the sick after he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Let's find out the principles that were involved as he healed the sick. In the same way, we will heal the sick as well, and we will see people healed. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And let's see how Jesus healed the sick. How did he heal the sick? How did he cast out demons? Luke 4, verse 31. Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. Verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now notice in verse 32 that the people were astonished when Jesus taught. Why? Because his word was with authority. The key word, the key concept here is authority. His authority was astonishing. Now let's find out what kind of authority he had and in what way was it astonishing. Let's keep reading verse 33. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? Now, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and suddenly there's a man who becomes demonized, and he begins to cry out. The demon manifests itself, and the man creates a scene. 
Now, we want to find out what does Jesus do. But before we do, let me ask the following question. What might a typical believer do in such a situation? Let's say, let's say we're having church on a Sunday morning, and uh, you have a typical believer sitting in the back row, and right next to him, there's a visitor, someone who has never been to church before, and let's say someone who is deep into witchcraft. Suddenly, right in the middle of the service, in the middle of the pastor's sermon, this visitor becomes demonized. The demon begins to manifest itself through this person. The person begins to shake and growl and scream out with a loud voice. All right? Now, what might a typical Christian do in such a situation? Well, let's be honest. We would have to say that a typical believer might get up and run because it's a very scary scenario. Now, of course, not all of us would get up and run because we're taught to be spiritual. And so those who are spiritual, well, we would react by doing something spiritual. For example, we would pray to God. Now, I'm sure that among the listeners tonight that there are quite a few of us who we wouldn't get up and run, but we would pray to God if we were faced with such a situation. And uh, those believers who have a charismatic background, when they pray, they might pray in tongues. They might pray in other languages. And there would be some who are really on the ball. They might, in fact, do the following. They would say, Father, in the name of Jesus, we command this demon to come out. Now, I'm sure that among those who are listening tonight, probably most of us would do one or more of those four. Now, what might a scripturally well-trained believer do? Well, I would say that a scripturally well-trained believer would do exactly what Jesus did. Wouldn't you agree? So let's find out exactly what did Jesus do. Let's look at verse 35 and find out. It says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Jesus rebuked the demon, saying, be quiet and come out of him. So, question, did Jesus pray for this man? Did Jesus pray to God for this man? And the answer is no. Jesus did not pray for this man. Another question. Did Jesus say, Father, we command this demon to be quiet and to come out of him? Did Jesus say that? No. Jesus did not address the Father at all. Jesus spoke directly to the demon and rebuked him and commanded him to be quiet and to come out of him. Now, do you think Jesus closed his eyes when he performed this action? And the answer is no. There's no reason why Jesus would close his eyes. He's not praying to the Father. He's speaking directly to a demon and issuing a command. And when you do such a thing, you do not close your eyes. Now, let's see what happened. What was the result of this action? Let's continue reading. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. What happened? Well, the demon came out of the man. And the man was healed. A miracle took place. How did Jesus do this miracle? He clearly did not do it by praying to the Father. Rather, he did the miracle by exercising the authority given to him by his Father. When Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River, he was given authority over demons by his Father. And when he wanted a demon to go, he didn't have to pray to his father to drive the demon out. 
he could do it himself since he had authority from his father over the demon. So we learn something very simple here. Authority is not exercised by praying, but rather by commanding that which is under your authority. Let's take a very, very simple example. Let's say you own a dog. You're the master, and your dog is your pet, and your dog is under your authority. Let's say you want your dog to sit. How do we get your, our dog to sit? Do you think any of us would pray to the Father and ask the Father to make our dog sit in Jesus' name? And of course not. That, that's silly. How would we make our dog sit? Well, we would look him in the eye and we would say, sit, and our dog, because he's under our authority, he would promptly sit. So the simple truth is that authority is not exercised by praying, but rather by commanding, whether in the natural realm or in the supernatural realm. Verse 36, Then they were all amazed, and they spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! The people were amazed at what Jesus did. They were amazed at his word. And what was the word that he spoke? Well, it was simply, Be quiet and come out of him. It was those words which he directed toward the demon. Now, why was this surprising? It was surprising because the demon actually obeyed the command of this flesh and blood human being named Jesus Christ. You see, these people thought that only God in heaven had power and authority over demons. And this is generally true. Only God in heaven has this kind of authority. But here we have a man, flesh and blood like you and me, but he's got power and authority like God himself. Look what they say. The people said, what a word this is. For with authority and power... He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. For with authority and power, like God, he commands the unclean spirits, like God can do, and they come out. They obey him. They are amazed that a human being with flesh and blood can have power and authority like God himself, such that he can command unclean spirits, and they obey his command. Now, we are not saying that Jesus never prayed. Of course he prayed. He prayed much. Sometimes he would pray all night. He spent a lot of time with his father. But we are saying that there were specific occasions on which he did not pray, but rather he would command. Typically Jesus would spend a lot of time with his father in prayer. But when he was done praying, he would get up and he would leave the house. And then he would step onto the battlefield and he would begin to minister. He would preach the gospel. He would heal the sick. He would cast out demons. And when he did that, there was not that much prayer, but rather there was commanding, commanding diseases, commanding demons. So, of course, Jesus prayed. But when he finished praying, when he went out to minister, he did not pray that much. But he exercised his authority over diseases and demons by giving commands. Verse 37. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, so we see how Jesus dealt with demons. He did not pray. He would rebuke them directly, and they would obey him because they were under his authority. Now, how did Jesus deal with a purely physical infirmity? How would he deal with someone who was just physically sick, who did not have a demon? Well, 
we have been taught that as believers, we do have authority to cast demons out of afflicted people, and, and this is true, yes. But if someone has a purely physical infirmity, well, we can only pray for him and trust God to heal him. For example, let's say someone has an ordinary fever. There's no demon involved. The person has a high fever. Now, let's think about this. Uh, can we rebuke the fever? Can we speak to the fever and command it to leave? That doesn't make sense. A demon is intelligent, and so when we command the demon to leave, it can hear us, and it will obey us. But a fever is not intelligent. And so if we rebuke a fever, certainly it's not going to hear us, and of course it's not going to obey us. So if someone has a purely physical infirmity, well, we, we, can't, uh, we can't rebuke that infirmity. No, we can only pray for him and trust God to heal him. Now this is traditionally what we are taught in the church. Demons we can cast out in Jesus' name. But purely physical infirmities, no. No, we just pray for them and just trust God to heal them. This is what we have been taught in the church. Let's see whether or not this is scriptural. Let's see how Jesus dealt with a purely physical infirmity. Let's go on to verse 38, same chapter of Luke. It says, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So here we have Simon's mother-in-law. She's suffering from a high fever. She doesn't have a demon. There is no demon at all. She's just sick. And they asked Jesus to help her. So let's find out what Jesus does. Verse 39. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever. Interesting. Notice that Jesus does not pray for Peter's mother-in-law. But in fact, he speaks directly to the fever. He rebukes the fever just as he rebuked the demon earlier. We don't know what he said to the fever, but I believe he said something like, leave, go. Now, another question. Uh, did Jesus say, Father, we rebuke this fever? Is that what Jesus said? The answer, of course, is no. Jesus spoke directly to the fever. Uh, did Jesus close his eyes? Obviously not. Why should Jesus close his eyes? He's not praying to the Father. He's rebuking the fever. There's no reason why he should close his eyes. And what was the result of this action? It left her. The fever left Peter's mother-in-law. The fever heard the command, and it obeyed. It left her. Now let's try to understand this. You see, a fever is not a demon. It's not intelligent. So how could Jesus possibly speak to the fever, and then the fever hear him and obey his command? Well, it's rather simple. When Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit at the Jordan River, he received authority from the Father not, o not only over demons, but also over physical infirmities. Both were under his authority. And since both were under his authority, both had to submit to him. Both had to obey his spoken commands. Whatever is under your authority must submit to you, must submit to your commands. And both demons and physical infirmities were under his authority, therefore both had to submit to him. Now, even though they're not the same thing, diseases and demons are different, 
But since both are under his authority, they both had to submit to his commands. So we see, we understand. Now, just briefly, Matthew 8.15, uh, you don't have to turn to this, but Matthew 8.15 describes from Matthew's point of view what Jesus did in healing Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew says, he touched her hand and the fever left her. Often, as we shall see, Jesus would lay hands on the sick to heal them. Now, why did he do that? Well, it was because when Jesus received, when Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit by the Father, he received healing power, and that healing power was resident in him. And when he laid hands on the sick, that healing power could go into the sick person to heal them. And that's why here he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Now, Mark also records something a bit different, slightly different, and this is found in 1, Mark 1, verse 31. It says, So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. And so according to these three accounts from the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus actually did three things in healing Peter's mother-in-law. Number one, he rebuked the fever. He spoke directly to the fever and commanded it to leave. Number two, he touched her hand. He laid hands on Peter's mother-in-law. Number three, he helped her to get up. So we see that he actually did not pray for her. He did not pray for her. And according to John fourteen twelve, we believers should be able to do the same thing. Now, do you know anyone who is sick in bed and cannot get well? And the doctors don't know why the person is sick. Why don't you go to that person and do what Jesus did? You lay hands on them. You rebuke that infirmity in Jesus' name. And then you say, okay, now get up. Now, do not be surprised by what you see. Let's look at Luke 40, excuse me, Luke chapter 4, same chapter. Now, verse 40. It says, when the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. We see that Jesus often laid hands on the sick to heal them, although not always, but often he did. And we are going to learn how to lay hands on the sick to heal them as Jesus did. Verse 41. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. And so when Jesus was confronted with demons, he would rebuke them. He would issue commands to them. That's how he took care of demons. And so we see that in the supernatural ministry of Jesus Christ toward the sick and the demon-oppressed, there were very often these two elements. Number one, the laying on of his hands and the exercise of his authority over demons and diseases by giving commands and by rebuking. And we are going to learn these two things. Luke chapter 5 now, chapter 5 and verse 12. Let me read it for you. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, here is a man with leprosy, a horrible skin condition, not necessarily caused by demons. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Now, notice what Jesus did. He touched the man. He laid hands on him so that this healing power could flow into the man to heal him. And then Jesus said, Be 
clean. Be clean. Now, is this a prayer? Was Jesus praying for this man? Actually, no. Jesus technically was not praying for this man. When Jesus said, be clean, he was speaking to the man's body. He was speaking directly to the man and commanding him to be clean. This was not a prayer. Did Jesus say, Father, we command this man to be clean? And the answer is no. Jesus did not address the Father at all. Jesus spoke directly to the man and commanded him to be clean. Uh, did Jesus close his eyes? And I believe the answer is no. Why should Jesus close his eyes? He's speaking to this man. He's commanding him to be clean. There is no reason why Jesus would close his eyes. He's not praying. Let's look now at Matthew now. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, and verse 9. Now let me read. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. There's a man with a shriveled hand. Perhaps he had suffered a stroke. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Now, question. Did Jesus pray for this man? And the answer is no. This is not a prayer. Jesus is not speaking to the Father. He's speaking directly to the man and commanding him to stretch out his hand. Did Jesus say, Father, we command this man to stretch out his hand? And the answer is no. Jesus did not address the Father at all. Jesus spoke directly to the man and commanded him to stretch out his hand. And it's clear, it's clear that Jesus did not close his eyes when he performed this action. There's no reason why he would close his eyes. Jesus is speaking directly to this man. So we're beginning to learn some principles here. Let's finish this. So the man stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Now, such miracles have taken place. There is a brother named Jim Hathaway. He's a Canadian missionary, and he came to our advanced training in February 2008. And afterwards, he went to the Philippines, and he would go on mission trips. And he tells me that on mission trips, when he has crusades or when he has opportunities to minister to stroke victims, he sees this very thing happening. They will come to him, and he will lay hands on him, and he will say, stretch forth your hand. And he sees their arms, their hands unfold, just like a flower blossoming, he tells us. So these miracles do take place, and now we are learning how to do them. Now, all of this is well and good. We know that Jesus can heal the sick. We know Jesus has power and authority to perform miracles. The problem is that Jesus is now in heaven. He's no longer on earth to heal the sick and cast out demons. The question is, who does the work that he did when he was on earth? Now, who does the work that Jesus did when he was on earth 2,000 years ago? And the answer, of course, is the body of Christ. Our head is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he has left behind on earth his body, the church, his disciples. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his voice. And so now we did what he did 2,000 years ago. We preach the gospel in his name. We heal the sick in his name. We cast out demons in his name. And this is in accordance with John 14:12, in which Jesus said, and anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. 
What did Jesus do? He preached the gospel. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He made disciples. He actually did not pray for the sick. Therefore, you are going to preach the gospel as Jesus did. You are going to heal the sick as Jesus did. You're going to cast out demons as Jesus did. Not as Reverend so-and-so, some healing, famous healing evangelist, but you are going to do it exactly as Jesus did. It's best to follow Jesus himself. You're going to make disciples as Jesus did. So do not just pray for the sick. Heal the sick as Jesus did. I am not forbidding anyone from praying for the sick. But don't just pray for the sick. Heal them as Jesus did. Because this power, this authority has been given to us as well. Now, John 14:12 it strongly implies that we have been given power and authority to heal the sick and cast out demons as Jesus did. But where does the Bible specifically teach that we as disciples of Jesus have actually been given any authority to heal the sick as Jesus did? Where does it say it? Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. It says Jesus called the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples who were apostles, and he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. So now, these twelve could heal the sick in his name. They could cast out demons in his name. They wouldn't have to ask Jesus to do it for them. They could do it in his name because now they were given the power and authority to do so. Now, why did Jesus give them this power and authority? This is key. Let's look at the next verse, verse 2. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. Now, this is the primary purpose of the power and authority which is given to disciples. It's so that we would be sent out to preach the kingdom of God to the lost for preaching the gospel. This is the primary purpose. Now, in verse 2, he, in addition to commanding his disciples to preach the kingdom of God, Jesus also tells them to heal the sick. It's right at the end. Let me just read verse 2 for you once again. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, notice that Jesus gave them two commands when he sent them out. Now, are these two commands still valid today? Preach the gospel and heal the sick. Are they still valid today? I would think that nearly all of the listeners would say, yes, these commands are still valid today. We are to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. Notice that Jesus did not tell them to pray for the sick. Rather, he told them to heal the sick, meaning heal the sick as he did. Now, how many disciples of Jesus Christ actually healed the sick in the way that Jesus did? Now, we know that all of us, at least all of us should, we, we should be preaching the kingdom of God to the lost, and I believe that all of us are. We have obeyed that command to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, to preach the kingdom of God to the lost. But how many of us have obeyed the second of his commands in that verse, verse 2? Heal the sick as he did. Not pray for the sick, but to heal the sick as he did. And this means actually performing miracles in real time. And the answer, of course, is very few of us actually heal the sick as Jesus did. 
I would say that most disciples of Jesus Christ have disobeyed his command to heal the sick as he did when we are preaching the gospel to the lost. I believe we should repent of our disobedience. He commanded us to heal the sick when we preach the gospel, and we have failed. Usually we just pray for the sick and leave the results up to God. Jesus didn't command us to pray for the sick and leave the results up to God. He said, heal the sick. And so I believe repentance is in order. We must repent of our disobedience to the command of Jesus Christ to heal the sick as we preach the gospel to the lost. Let's dig into this a bit more deeply and find out why we, why we don't heal the sick as Jesus commanded. Let's look at the difference between praying for the sick and healing the sick as Jesus did. See, normally we will pray for the sick, but very rarely do we heal the sick as Jesus himself did 2,000 years ago. All right, here's a question. Uh, which is easier, praying for the sick or healing the sick as Jesus did, which is easier? Well, we would have to say that praying for the sick is much easier than healing the sick as Jesus did. Now, why? Well, what does it mean to pray for the sick? Essentially, praying for the sick means, means we praying to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and asking him to heal someone according to his will. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, after we pray, if that person is healed, then we say, praise God, hallelujah. Now, if after we pray the person is not healed, then we say, praise God, it's not his will. It's not God's will to heal. The bottom line is that no matter what happens, we cannot fail to pray for the sick. Because we're asking God to heal the sick. It's not our responsibility. It's in God's hands. We pray and God can say yes, God can say no. The results are completely up to him. Therefore, it is completely impossible to fail when we are praying for the sick because the results are completely up to God. And that's why we're so good at praying for the sick because it's impossible to fail. The results are completely up to God. Now, the problem is that Jesus never told his disciples to pray for the sick in any of the four Gospels. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, nowhere in those four Gospels when Jesus sent his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God, did he say, pray for the sick? But rather, he said, heal the sick. So, what does it mean to heal the sick as Jesus did? Well, it means to perform miraculous healings as Jesus did. Opening the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, healing the lame, performing real miracles in real time. And the question is, is it possible to fail when healing the sick as Jesus did? And the answer clearly is yes. I believe many of us have tried to heal the sick, tried to perform miracles in real time as Jesus did, and usually nothing happened. Usually we failed. It is definitely possible to fail when healing the sick as Jesus did. And how do you feel when you try to heal someone in Jesus' name and nothing happens? But you feel very embarrassed. You feel really bad. You want to run and hide. And since we have failed so many times when trying to heal the sick as Jesus did, nowadays we don't try to heal the sick anymore. We just wait for the famous healing evangelist who has the special gift of healing to come. 
and then we bring the sick to his meetings. Until nowadays, we just pray for the sick. We don't heal the sick, as Jesus commanded his disciples. Few servants of God and believers today actually heal the sick, as Jesus commanded his disciples. And that's why miraculous healings are rare in the church today. They are, they are rare because the church has failed to obey Christ's command to heal the sick as he did. Let's go back to Luke 9, where we were before, and pick up with verse 6. So, so they set out, we're talking about the twelve apostles, they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. These twelve obeyed the commands of the Lord. They went out. They went from village to village. They were preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. It doesn't say they were praying for the sick everywhere. They were actually performing miraculous healings everywhere. And this is what we are going to learn to do. We are going to learn to preach the gospel. And we are going to learn to heal people as Jesus did. We are going to learn to perform miraculous healings as Jesus did, as we preach the gospel to the lost. You see, preaching the gospel and healing the sick are a single package. They go together. And I believe that's clear. When we preach the gospel, those who do not yet believe, they want to see some kind of evidence. They want to see the proof that the gospel that we preach is in fact true. And Jesus therefore commands us to heal the sick as evidence that he is in fact the Messiah, that he is in fact the only Savior, the only way to the Father. We must learn now how to heal people in the context of preaching the gospel. And when we do, we, we will be far more effective in proclaiming the kingdom of God, and we will have a powerful weapon by which we can fulfill the Great Commission, especially to the gospel resistance, like Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and those who believe in witchcraft. I do not speak from theory, but I speak from actual experience. Now, Jesus commanded his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. This is clear. He commanded them to do those two things. Now, his final command before returning to heaven is found in Matthew 28, and this is also known as the Great Commission. I believe most of us know this, so you don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. Matthew 28:18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Let's focus on that last verse, verse 20. This is part of the Great Commission. Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We are to teach the Lord's disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. And what did Jesus command us? Jesus commands us to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Therefore, today, today we must teach disciples, the Lord's disciples, to obey what he commanded his disciples 2,000 years ago. We must teach today's disciples to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, to heal the sick in the name of Jesus Christ as confirmation of the gospel, and to obey his other commands as well, of course. Now, uh, Shannon, I'm going to switch phones, okay? Yes, sir. 
Absolutely. So let me if just... you are tuning in now, you're listening to Omega Man Radio. This is a live broadcast. Today is July 15th. We are listening to pastor, evangelist, teacher, William Lau of the Elijah Challenge. We have about an hour remaining. We're going to take just a short break and give the pastor a moment to switch phones. And then he'll be resuming. His website is theelijahchallenge.org. Let me repeat that again, theelijahchallenge.org. And what we're doing tonight is this is a basic training. And I would encourage everyone to uh, get a hold of that website. Bookmark it as a favorite. Contact the ministry. Get on their mailing list. And avail yourself of their uh, materials that are available online. And, uh, Pastor, as you were preaching there, uh, we have uh, people listening and got a comment that says, What a great teaching. The Lord saved me in 2002, and I've never heard a teaching like this. So I want to praise God for having you on tonight. Let me give the microphone back to you, brother. Okay, thank you, Shannon. Okay, let's resume. Now, we note from Luke chapter 9 that Jesus called the 12 disciples, and those were the apostles, the, the big boys. We know their names. Now, what about disciples like you and me who are not apostles? Now, do we have any of this power and authority? Well, let's look into this matter. Let's look at Luke chapter 10 now. Luke chapter 10 and verse 1. Let me read. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Now, these 70 were not apostles. They were simply disciples like you and me, committed disciples. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So notice that Jesus called 70 disciples, ordinary disciples, and sent them out two by two, of course, to proclaim the kingdom of God before he arrived at those places. Now look at verse 9 of the same chapter. Let's skip down to verse 9. Look what Jesus commands them to do. He says, Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. Now, what do we conclude from this? If Jesus commanded the 70 who were not apostles to heal the sick as they proclaimed the kingdom of God, what does that mean? That means that he gave them a measure of power and authority to heal the sick. And so we conclude from verse 9 that authority over diseases was also given to the 70 disciples who were not apostles when they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this verse clearly means that in the context of evangelism, the Lord's will in general is to heal the sick. There is something called the will of God to heal someone that can sometimes be in doubt. Let's say we're ministering healing to someone, and suddenly we have this question in our minds. uh, Is it God's will to heal this person? If it's not God's will, then I'm wasting my time. I'm making a fool out of myself. And so we see how sometimes the question of God's will can paralyze us. And I would agree, this is true. If it's not God's will for someone to be healed, uh, we're wasting our time. So how do we deal with this issue about God's will? Well, just going back to verse 9, it says, Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Now, when Jesus says heal the sick, what does that mean? That means it's his will. For the sick 
to be healed. That is so obvious. When you are proclaiming the kingdom of God to the lost, it is his will in general for the sick to be healed. He wants you to heal the sick. So you don't have to be paralyzed by doubt, especially in the context of preaching the gospel to the lost. Let's skip down now to verse 17, same chapter, verse 17. It says, The seventy returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. What do we conclude from that? Well, they were casting out demons in the name of Jesus, which meant that Jesus, when he sent them out, he gave them authority over demons as well. So what conclusion do we draw? Well, okay, the twelve apostles, they were given power and authority over disease and demons when Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the seventy who were not apostles, the seventy disciples were also given a measure of this power and authority when they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what do these two groups have in common? What they had in common was they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Whoever is sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost is given a measure of this power and authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. So, who is sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God to the lost? Well, the answer is obvious. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is sent out to the world as a witness. Therefore, every disciple of Jesus Christ has been given a measure of this power and authority to heal the sick and cast out demons to be used in proclaiming the kingdom of God to the lost. And we're going to learn how to use this power, this authority effectively in that context. Now, before we go on, let me just pause for a moment and say something. This authority over disease is not the same thing as the gift of healing. I had mentioned this earlier, but let me mention four major differences between the authority to heal and the gift of healing. Now, the first major difference is the difference in time. Now, the authority to heal was given well before the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. In the Gospels, before the Acts, before the day of Pentecost, Jesus already gave this authority to his disciples. But the gift of healing, when was that available to the church? At the very earliest. Well, at the very earliest, it was available on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And so we see that the authority to heal was given well before the gift of healing was made available to the church. And so they could not possibly be the same thing. The authority to heal came first. It was more basic, more foundational. Second difference, difference in function between the authority and the gift. The function of the authority is not for building up the body of Christ, not for not primarily for ministering to sick believers, but for proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Now, by contrast, the gift of healing is primarily for ministering to sick believers. So we see that there's a difference in function. Now, there's a lot of overlap, okay? There's a lot of overlap. But there is a difference in function between the two. The authority is for preaching the gospel to the lost, healing the sick in that context. In contrast, the gift is primarily for use in ministering to sick believers. 
in the context of building up the body of Christ. The third major difference between the two is difference in frequency. Every believer is given this authority because every believer is a disciple. Every believer should be a disciple, and therefore every believer has this authority. But not every believer has the gift of healing. Some have the gift of healing, but not all. And finally, the fourth difference is the difference in operation. The operation of the authority to heal is very different from the operation of the gift of healing. How does the authority to heal operate? Well, it operates by the disciple giving commands in the name of Jesus Christ. Whereas the gift of healing can operate perhaps through prayer or through worship. Something along those lines. Now let's go back and look at healing. Why do we fail to heal the sick? Uh, most of us at some point have tried to heal someone, not simply pray for someone, but have tried to heal someone as Jesus did, and we have failed. And we want to know why. We're going to look at an instance in the Gospels where the disciples of Jesus also experienced failure to heal the sick. Let's look at Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17 and verse 14. Let's turn there. Let me read. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Now here is an instance of failure to heal someone, failure to perform a miracle. They failed to heal the boy. They failed to drive the demon out of the boy. Let's look at what Jesus said when he heard that his disciples had failed. Verse 17. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus said, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Now, by conventional church standards, Jesus' words are outrageous. Why do I say that? It's because no pastor or leader would ever say such a thing to a believer who had failed to drive out a demon, who had failed to heal the sick, who had failed to perform some sort of miracle. This is never said. First of all, we're supposed to be nice and gentle and kind. But second of all, the problem is our theology. Our theology says only God has authority to perform miracles. Only God has that kind of power. Uh, we believers, we can do nothing. All we can do is pray and trust God. And so when believers fail to heal the sick, when believers fail to drive out demons, we never blame them. We never say, how long shall I stay with you? What's wrong with you? You, 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 you unbelieving pervert, you. We never say such a thing. We just, we just say, yeah, okay, that's fine. Hallelujah, praise God. All right? But Jesus was different. He was disappointed. You can almost say he was angry, and, and he rebuked his disciples sharply. He called them unbelieving and perverse. Now, how do we explain his, his words? Now, clearly, Jesus expected and even demanded his disciples to do the miracle, clearly. He's not rebuking the father. He's not rebuking the boy. He's rebuking his disciples for failing to do the miracle. He expected them. And he even demanded them to do the miracle. And so when they failed, he rebuked them sharply. 
And so his theology on this issue differs sharply from the theology of the church. Now, what does our theology say? Our theology says only God in heaven has such power and authority to heal the sick and drive out demons. We believers can do nothing. But Jesus' theology was different. He expected and demanded his disciples to do the miracle. And so the question is, who is correct on this issue, Jesus or the church? And clearly, the answer is Jesus. Okay? The church is not always right. Sometimes the church is clearly wrong. Just look at church history and you will find time and time again where the church has been wrong on certain issues. And the church is wrong on this particular issue. Let's try to understand Jesus' theology on this issue. How could he possibly expect and even demand his disciples to perform the miracle? Well, number one, they were his disciples, and they were being trained to do what he did. You see, his disciples followed Jesus from place to place. Okay? And what was Jesus doing from place to place? He was preaching the gospel. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. And they were watching him, they were observing him, and they were learning to do what he did. And I'm sure he was teaching them to do what he did. And so they had been trained how to heal the sick and cast out demons. Number two, Jesus had given them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. We just read in Luke 9, Luke 10, that he called the twelve, he called the seventy. And he had given them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. And the third reason why Jesus was justified in his anger and disappointment at his disciples, the third reason is the following. He had sent them out and commanded them to heal the sick. We saw that in Luke 9, Luke 10. He sent them out and said, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. So based on these three reasons, we see that Jesus was completely justified in his anger, his disappointment, when he heard that his disciples had failed to drive out the demon. He was justified. He was not being unreasonable. Now, let's go back to the scripture. Then Jesus says, bring the boy here to me. Okay, you can sense uh, obvious disappointment in his words. He clearly wanted his disciples to be able to perform the miracle. They couldn't, so he had to step in and take over. Bring the boy here to me, Jesus said. Now, Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Now, how did Jesus perform the miracle? Did he pray for the boy? And the answer was no. Jesus spoke directly to the demon and rebuked it. He commanded it to leave, and it obeyed. It came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Jesus did not pray. He exercised authority over the demon by rebuking it, by issuing a command. Now, verse 19. Now, this is important. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private, and they asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? Why did we fail? They want to know why they failed. And we're going to find out why they failed. Now, first of all, it was not because they lacked authority. Jesus already gave them authority. Luke 9, Luke 10, Jesus had given them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. So the problem was not a lack of authority. And it was not because they didn't know about commanding. 
Obviously, they had seen Jesus command demons, and they knew that they were supposed to give commands. They weren't supposed to pray. So it was not a problem of lacking authority and not, and not giving commands. So what was the problem? We're going to find out. All right? Now, before we look at the explanation that Jesus gave why they failed, we're going to just pause for just a moment, and we'll look, we're going to look at four reasons which the church gives to explain why the sick are not healed when we minister to them. Often we will minister healing to someone, and when they're not healed, how do we justify it? How do we explain it, I should say? Well, we say, it's not God's will. That's why the person is not healed. It's not God's will. Number two, we will say, it's not God's time as an explanation for why the person was not healed. Okay? Uh, number three, reason number three, we will look at the sick person and say, well, maybe the sick person has sin in his or her life. That's why they're not healed. That's the third reason. And the fourth, the fourth reason, this is the favorite among charismatic believers. We will say, the sick person lacks faith. That's why they're not healed. And so when people are not healed we come up with one or more of these four reasons. It's not God's will. It's not God's time. The sick person has sin. The sick person lacks faith. Now, I am not saying that these reasons lack validity. Sometimes they might apply. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a believer who is sick. The believer wants to be healed. But the believer has unforgiveness in his heart. And he doesn't want to confess or repent of the unforgiveness. Now, is it God's will to heal this person? No. God will heal this person only if this person confesses their sin, repents of unforgiveness. So some of these reasons can, in fact, be valid. However, please look at the following. When we say it's not God's will, it's not God's time to explain why someone is not healed, essentially, we are blaming God for the person not being healed. Essentially, in so many words, we're blaming God. We're saying, oh, yeah, what can you do? You know, God doesn't want to heal you, or it's not God's time, maybe next week. When we say it's not God's will, it's not God's time, we're, we're pointing a finger at God. Okay, God is the one who's responsible for this. When we say, well, it's because the sick person has sin, or the sick person lacks faith, that's why the person is not healed, then essentially we are blaming the sick person. And so we have the following. When a person is not healed, we say, well, we either blame God or the sick person. And this is what the church basically teaches, if you think about it. When people are not healed, either it's God's fault or the sick person's fault. Now, this, of course, is very convenient. We rarely blame ourselves when the miracle doesn't take place. We hardly ever say, oh, it's our fault. No, usually we either blame God or the sick person. Well, let's go back to this incident here. What reason did Jesus give in this particular situation to explain why the miracle did not take place? Was it, in fact, not God's will, not God's time to heal the boy? Or was it because the boy had sin or lacked faith? Now, I'm sure the boy did have sin, but was that the reason why God didn't heal him? Let's find out the real reason. Let's read what Jesus said in verse 20. He replied, 
because you have so little faith. Because you have so little faith. So whose fault was it that the miracle did not take place? Was it because it wasn't God's will? It wasn't God's time? Or the boy had sinned? The boy lacked faith? No. It was because the disciples who ministered to the boy lacked faith. What do we learn from this? We learn that we should not always blame God or the sick person when the miracle doesn't take place. Sometimes, or maybe even often, it could be our fault, the fault of the disciple. We lack faith. That could be the reason why the person is not healed. It's not because they lacked authority. Jesus didn't say it's because you lack the anointing, whatever that means. No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, it's because you have so little faith. So let's key in on this. We fail because we lack faith. Now, what kind of faith did they lack resulting in their failure? Let's just keep reading. Let's just keep reading. In the very next breath, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as a mustard seed, what do we see? We see that they lacked faith. Faith as a mustard seed. That's why they failed to drive out the demon. Let's continue reading. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What kind of faith did they lack? They lacked mountain-moving faith. They lacked faith as a mustard seed. That's why they failed to dislodge the demon. They lacked mountain-moving faith. And this could be the reason why we fail to heal the sick. It's not because we lack authority. not because we lack the anointing. It's because we lack something called mountain-moving faith. And we're going to study this in detail. So clearly, they had little mountain-moving faith. And that's why they failed. So we want to know how we can grow in mountain-moving faith in order to move mountains move diseases or dislodge demons. We're going to look at verse 21. Now, verse 21 does not appear in all the Greek manuscripts. In the NIV, it appears as a footnote at the bottom of the page. But I believe it's important, so let's just just look at it. The footnote says, But this kind does not go out, except by prayer and fasting. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? I am convinced that Jesus means prayer and fasting increase your faith. Prayer and fasting increase your mountain-moving faith such that you can cast out demons and heal the sick. There's nowhere else in the scripture where a demon came out just purely by prayer and fasting. I believe that what Jesus meant was that these disciples had not been praying and fasting enough. If they had been praying and fasting enough, they would have had sufficient mountain-moving faith to drive out the demon. And so we conclude that prayer and fasting increase mountain-moving faith in order to cast out demons successfully. Prayer and fasting by themselves do not remove demons, but they prepare us with the right kind of faith, with enough faith in order to drive the demons out. Let's look at the nature of mountain-moving faith. Exactly what is it? We're going to find out right now. Let's turn to Mark 11 and verse 12. Mark 11 and verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. 
Verse 13, seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Verse 14, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, once again, Jesus says something rather peculiar. He talks to a tree. Now, of course, most of us don't talk to trees for obvious reasons. But here we see Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is talking to a tree. And his disciples were right there. They heard him speak to the tree. What did Jesus say to the tree? Jesus essentially commanded the tree to die. He cursed the tree. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Essentially, he commanded it to wither and to die. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, let's skip to verse 20. Let's skip down to verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. All right. A miracle has taken place. The fig tree dies. Question. How did Jesus perform this miracle? Was it through prayer? And the answer, of course, is no. He didn't pray. He didn't pray to the Father. He spoke directly to the fig tree and essentially commanded it to die. Jesus exercised authority over the tree by commanding it to die. Uh, apparently, this fig tree was under his authority. The Father had given Jesus authority over this tree. He was displeased with the tree. He wanted it to die. And so he commanded it to die, and it obeyed. Verse 21. Now Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, Peter is excited. He's very impressed with what he has seen Jesus do. You see, Peter is the disciple. He's fascinated with the miracles that he sees Jesus doing. And how do we know this? Well, you recall the time when Peter was seated on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Jesus walking toward him on the water. And what does Peter want to do? Peter also wants to walk on water. So based on that, I have concluded that Peter, he's very fascinated with miracles. And Peter has just seen Jesus do a very powerful miracle here. The fig tree was cursed and it died. And I believe Peter wants to know exactly how Jesus performed this miracle by using his authority. Now in the next verse, Jesus gives the answer. He gives the explanation. He explains to Peter exactly how he used his authority to curse the fig tree. Let's find out. Let's look at verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Now, I have looked at this verse in the original Greek, and I have found that there is another equally valid translation in the English. And that equally valid translation is the following. Have faith of God. Jesus answered. Now, this is a valid translation. If you look at the modern King James Version of the Bible, it says, have faith of God. That's how it's rendered. If you look at Young's literal translation of the Bible, this verse is rendered, have faith of God. So this is a valid translation. Literally, Jesus said to Peter, have faith of God. That's how Jesus exercised his authority when he commanded the tree to die. He had faith of 
God. Now, most of us have never heard this expression, faith of God. How can God possibly have faith? We need to have faith in order to be saved. How could God have faith? It sounds like false teaching. But hold it. Just wait a moment. Let's keep on reading. Next verse, and we will see what Jesus meant by faith of God. Verse 23. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. If anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea. And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Now that is the definition of faith of God. It is functionally identical to mountain-moving faith. If you have faith of God, you can say to a mountain, and you can command it to go, to go throw itself into the sea. And when you speak to that mountain... In your heart, you do not doubt, but you believe that what you say to that mountain will happen. Ah, it will be done for you. That's how Jesus explains faith of God. It is functionally equivalent to mountain-moving faith. If you have faith of God, you will not have any doubt when you speak to the mountain. You believe that the mountain will obey you. And so there are two components of faith of God. Number one. There is no doubt in your heart. Number two, what I say must be done. According to Jesus, those are the two ingredients of faith of God or mountain-moving faith. Now, I'm going to give you five illustrations of faith of God. And after you, you hear these five illustrations, then you will understand how it works. Illustration number one. How would God move a mountain? How would God move a mountain? Well, would God pray? And the answer is, of course not. To whom would God pray? He is God. So God would not pray if he wanted a mountain to be moved. How would he move a mountain? Well, he would speak to the mountain. He might say something like, Go, throw yourself into the sea. Now, when God commands the mountain to go and throw itself into the sea, does God have any doubt that the mountain will obey him? Does God have any doubt? Does he believe that what he says will, will take place? Does he believe that the mountain will obey him? Or does he have doubts? Does he think to himself, what if this mountain doesn't move? Man, I'll be so embarrassed. I'll look so bad. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit. Move this mountain for me, Holy Spirit. Does God have doubts that the mountain will obey him? And the answer, of course, is no. God doesn't doubt that the mountain will obey him. And the question is, why not? Why doesn't God have any doubt when he commands a mountain to move? Why not? Think about that. Well, the answer is because God knows that the mountain is under his authority. Therefore, it must obey his commands. It must move. It is under his authority. He is God. Therefore, when he commands it to move into the sea, he speaks with faith of God, with no doubt in his heart. He believes that the mountain will obey him. It's under his authority. It must move. So when God speaks to the mountain, he speaks with faith 
of God. Let me give you a second illustration. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then at verse, in verse 3, God said, let there be light. Now, let there be light is essentially a command for the light to appear. In the Hebrew, actually it says, light be. So God is essentially commanding the light to appear. Now let's say for the sake of argument that when God said, let there be light, that there were angels present. Now, when God said, let there be light, did he have any doubt that the light would appear? Did he think to himself, what if this light doesn't appear? I'm going to be so embarrassed. Oh, it looks so bad in front of the angels. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit. Command the light to come for me. Don't let me be put to shame. Did God have any doubt that the light would appear? And the answer, of course, is no. And I would ask, why not? Why would God have no doubt when he commands the light to appear? Well, it's because God knows the light is under his authority. It must appear when he commands it to. Therefore, when he says, let there be light, he says it with faith of God, with no doubt in his heart. He knows it's going to happen because that light is under his authority. When he speaks to the light, he speaks with faith of God. And it's based upon his authority over the light. And so we conclude that faith of God is related to authority. When you understand your authority over something, then you can speak to that thing with faith of God third illustration, we go back to Jesus cursing the fig tree. We know that Jesus is standing in front of the fig tree, and Peter and the other disciples are standing next to him. And Jesus speaks to the fig tree, and he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, when Jesus spoke to the fig tree, did he have any doubt in his heart that the fig tree would wither? Did he think to himself, Oh my, Peter and the other disciples are standing right here. If the fig tree doesn't wither, I'm going to be so embarrassed. I'm going to look so bad, they might not believe in me anymore. They might leave me. Oh, Father in heaven, help me, Lord. Holy Spirit, help me. Curse this fig tree for me, oh God. Did Jesus have any doubt that the fig tree would wither? And of course the answer is no. And my question is, why not? The answer is because Jesus knew the fig tree was under his authority. The Father had put that tree under his authority. And when he commanded it to die, of course it would die. It had to obey him. It's under his authority. And so when Jesus spoke to the fig tree, may no one ever eat food from you again, he spoke with faith of God. And this was based upon his authority over the tree. He had no doubt that it would wither. He knew that what he said would come to pass. That's faith of God. He issued the command with faith of God, just as he answered Peter. Illustration number four. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. 
Now, when Jesus, when Jesus arrives at the village where Lazarus lived, he was already about three or, three or four days late. Lazarus was already in the tomb, and his body was beginning to decay. Jesus goes to the tomb, and he brings Mary and Martha and some Jews along with him. Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus, and then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, did Jesus have any doubts that Lazarus would come back to life when he issued the command? Did he think to himself, hey, you know, I've got, I've got Mary and Martha standing right here next to me. I've got some Jews standing right next to me. What if this miracle doesn't take place? What if he doesn't come back to life? Oh, Father, help me. Help me, Father. Help me, Holy Spirit. Don't let me be put to shame. Help me. Bring him back to life, Father. Did Jesus have any doubt that Lazarus would come back to life? And the answer, of course, is no. And the question is, why not? Why did Jesus have no doubt when he commanded Lazarus to come forth? Well, it was because Jesus knew the Father had given him authority to raise the dead. We see this in John 5, verse 21. The Father gave Jesus authority to raise the dead. Jesus could raise any dead person he wanted back to life. That was within the realm of his authority. He knew he could do it. And so when he said, Lazarus, come forth, he spoke with no doubt. He spoke with authority. He spoke with faith of God. He spoke knowing that what he said would come to pass. And he could speak in that way because he knew that it was within the realm of his authority to raise the dead. And so we see that faith of God is related to authority. When you have authority over something, then you can speak without doubt with faith of God to that thing which is under your authority. Now, fifth and final illustration Let's say you have a dog, a pet dog, tiny little thing, and you have spent $500 sending this dog to obedience school. And this dog is under your authority. You're the master, your dog is the pet, under your authority. Let us say one day you're teaching a Bible study in your home and you've got 12 believers there. And you're teaching them about the nature of authority. And as you're teaching, suddenly your dog, let's say his name is Tuffy, your dog appears, he walks into the room, and he's wagging his tail in front of you. And suddenly you have this idea. You're going to use your dog as an example of how to give commands to things under your authority in order to make them obey. So you stand up, you're towering over your dog, and you open your eyes and you look at him, and you you say, sit, Tuffy, sit. Now, question, do you have any doubts when you tell your dog to sit? Do you think to yourself, man, what if this dog doesn't sit? I'll be so embarrassed in front of these 12 believers. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Holy Spirit. Help me, Father. And then maybe there's a burst of tongues if you happen to be a charismatic believer. Help me, Lord. Make him sit. Do you have any doubts when you tell your dog to sit? And the answer, of course, is no. Well, why not? And the answer is because 
he's under our authority. We know we have authority over him. We know we can do this. And so when we tell him to sit, we speak with faith of God. We say, sit, and he sits. So what we learn from this is that faith of God is related to understanding our authority over that thing which, to which we want to give a command. To make this more clear, let me give you an example of, of how not to tell your dog to sit, how not to exercise authority over your dog. Let's say Tuffy is standing in front of you, he's wagging his tail, he's waiting for you to give a command. And this is how you exercise your authority over your dog. You get down on your knees, you close your eyes and you look up and you say, Father, help me. Lord Jesus, help me. And then there's a burst of tongues. And then, and then after that, you open your eyes and you look at your dog and you say, Tuffy, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Tuffy, if you don't mind, would you please sit, Tuffy? Hallelujah. Jesus loves you and so do I. Tuffy, would you please sit? Followed by another burst of tongues. Now, let me ask you, if that's how you give commands to your dog to sit, is he going to obey you? And the answer, of course, is I don't think so. Tuffy is just going to stand there and lick your face. He's not going to understand what you want him to do, even though you have authority over him. But if you don't give the command, if you don't exercise the authority with faith of God, which means sit, he's not going to obey you. Let me give you another example. Let's say, let's say you have a five-year-old son. His name is Johnny, and he's a little bit hyperactive. He doesn't like to sit down and eat dinner. One day, it's, it's 8 o'clock in the evening. It's two hours past his dinner time, and little Johnny is still running around the house. And you're his mother, and you have authority over Johnny, and you're much bigger than Johnny is. Now, how would you exercise your authority over little Johnny in order to make him sit down and eat his dinner? Would you do the following? Would you get down on your knees before your little, your little Johnny, and would you say to him, Johnny, Mommy loves you, and Jesus loves you too. Johnny, if you don't mind, would you please sit down and eat your dinner? But if you do mind, that's okay. I love you anyway. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And then you close your eyes and look up to the heavens and you say, Lord Jesus, help me, Lord. Help me make him sit. Nothing is impossible for you, Lord. Please make him sit. Don't let him starve to death. I'm going to wait upon you until, until you make him sit. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, and you do all of this on your knees before your little boy, Johnny. So I ask you the question, even though you have authority over Johnny, is he going to obey your command and sit to eat his dinner? And the answer is, I don't think so. Why not? Because you didn't exercise your authority over him with faith of God. You had doubts. You were asking Jesus to help you. You were asking the Father. You were asking the Holy Spirit to help you. You were speaking in tongues. You see, when you speak in tongues, 
What does it say about yourself? Now, according to charismatic teaching, and uh, I don't disagree with this, we speak in tongues when we need help from God, when we are confused or when we need more information uh, or when we don't know what to do. We need God's direction, then we speak in tongues, hoping to receive direction from God. Okay? Now, I'm fine with that. Now, if you speak in tongues when uh, you are telling your dog to sit, when you are telling little Johnny to sit down and eat his dinner, what are you telling little Johnny? (laughs) You're telling little Johnny that you doubt, that you are confused, that you need God's help, that you need direction. And when you come at your five-year-old boy from that point of weakness, he's not going to obey you. How do we make little Johnny sit? Well, we don't get on our knees. We tower over him and we say, Johnny, sit down and eat your dinner. And we might even take him by the hand and escort him to the table and have him sit down. We speak with faith of God. We exercise our authority with faith of God, with absolute finality, with absolute confidence. There is no doubt. Now, to climax this, why did the disciples fail to drive out the demon? Why did they fail to drive out the demon? Well, I'm going to explain to you why. According to Jesus, it was because they lacked faith. They had little faith. They had little what kind of faith? They had little mountain-moving faith, or little faith of God, which meant they doubted that they could drive out the demon as Jesus commanded them, expected them to do. All right? Now, in view of that, let me give you a scenario of what they did wrong. And I will exaggerate this just to make a point, but you will get the point, okay? Now, here's what they did wrong. The father brings the boy, and uh, he sees the disciples outside, okay? And he brings the boy to the disciples. He's asking for help. And as they approach the disciples, suddenly the demons attack the boy and throws the boy down to the ground, and he's convulsing, and he's, he's rolling around like a fish out of water. And the disciples right there, they look at this. They're looking at this very powerful demon tormenting this boy. And then the, the father says to the disciples, Oh, please help my boy. He's been attacked since he was little. Please help him if you can. Okay. And immediately, the disciples, watching the demon, the power of this demon causing this boy to convulse and rolling around, arms flailing, guess what? In their hearts, there is doubt. And immediately, they look around. Where is Jesus? This is a big one. Jesus, help! It turns out Jesus is coming down the Mount of Transfiguration. He's too far away. He's in the distance. And so the disciples have to do it by themselves. And so they say, okay, let's, uh, we'll, 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 we'll try. We'll, we'll do our best. And so they roll up their sleeves and they attack and they approach the demon. And they say, in the name of Jesus, we command you to leave. Go in Jesus' name. Jesus, help, help, help us, Jesus. Help us. This is a big one. Nothing is impossible for you. This one is hard. 
But Jesus is still far away. He's still approaching from a distance. They turn back to the demon and say, okay, let's try this again. You know, who knows? Maybe, maybe God will help us. In the name of J Jesus, we com command you to leave. Oh, nice demon, nice demon. <laughs> and they go and they run and hide behind the father. Okay, help Jesus. All right. Now, of course, I've slightly exaggerated this. The point is, they had doubt. The moment you say, help me, Jesus, you have given yourself away. The demon knows that you doubt that you can drive it out. You prove to the demon, you demonstrate to the demon that you have little faith, little faith of God, little mountain-moving faith, little faith as a mustard seed. And the consequence is, he's not leaving. Once he senses that you have doubt, even though you may have authority over him, but when you give the command with doubt, he's not going to leave, because doubt means little faith, little mountain-moving faith, little faith of God. So therefore, when we are driving out demons, when we are healing the sick, using authority, we never say, help me, Jesus. We should not speak in tongues if we happen to be a charismatic believer. Because when you speak in tongues, you are telling the demon that you may be confused, that you need God's help, and that you need direction. You are essentially telling the, telling the demon that you doubt that you can drive out that demon. And as a result, he's not leaving. When we cast out demons, we command them with faith of God, with mountain-moving faith. Meaning, above, meaning, among other things, we don't say, help me, Jesus, help me, Father, help me, Holy Spirit. Meaning, we do not speak in tongues if we happen to have that gift. Rather, instead, we speak to that demon and we say, get out! leave and we speak with no doubt with mountain moving faith we speak with absolute finality we know that what we say will come to pass this thing must obey me because the word of god says it's under my authority especially when i am preaching the gospel to the lost when we speak to the demon or the disease in that fashion they will obey us and the person will be set free so when someone, like, for example, a general, a military commander, when he gives a command to that which is under his authority, he utters the command with no doubt or fear of being rejected. No. The general knows his authority. When he gives commands, there's no doubt that his men will obey him. Because he has been given authority in that realm, he believes that what he says will happen. Now, disciples of Jesus Christ, who are sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God, we have been given authority over diseases and demons. Okay, that is the realm of our authority. And please keep in mind that I am not suggesting that believers have all authority like God himself. I am not saying that at all. But I am saying that when we are sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God, we do have authority over diseases and demons. And when in this context of proclaiming the kingdom of God, we command diseases and demons to go in Christ's name, we speak with faith of God without doubt or fear of failure. Now, authority over diseases and demons must be exercised with faith of God or mountain-moving faith. 
the consequence of lack of faith, lack of mountain-moving faith, could be failure to drive out the demon or heal the sick. And so, this authority is in us. It's like potential energy given by the Lord. It's potential to heal the sick. Authority in the Greek exousia. It's in us. Now, how do we transform this authority into a miraculous healing? Well, we exercise the authority. We give the command with mountain-moving faith, with faith of God, with faith without a doubt. That transforms the potential into a miraculous healing. Finally, please note that Jesus never told his disciples that they lack something called the anointing. No, he never said that. Rather, he rebuked them time and time again, at least three times, for lacking faith of God, with which they were to exercise authority over diseases and demons. Now, what I would like to do now is let's do a demonstration over the Internet. Okay? This is what we normally do when we're doing a live teaching. We'll do a demonstration. We ask uh, people with infirmities to come to the front, and then we do a demonstration of how to heal them as Jesus did. And people normally are healed, and they will testify. So let's do this right now over the Internet. Uh, what I suggest is that... If uh, you are listening to this with someone, okay, ask that person, do they have some kind of pain in their body? Is there pain in their body anywhere? What we're going to do is we're going to lay hands on the pain, much as Jesus might have done, and then we're going to rebuke the pain in the name of Jesus with mountain-moving faith and with no doubt. So we're not going to pray, but we're going to command. So if there's anyone in the room with you, Okay, find out who's got pain in their body. It's best to have men ministering to men and ladies ministering to ladies. Okay, let's do that right now. Let's find someone who's got some sort of pain in their body. Now, if you're all by yourself, then you have no choice but to, uh, well, okay, this is not in the Bible, but you can do this. You can lay hands on yourself wherever you have pain. Now, again, uh, this is not found in the Bible, laying hands on yourself. But the principle is, we lay hands on those with infirmities, and the infirmity could be in your own body. So if there's no one there, lay hands on yourself wherever you have the pain. Okay, do it now. And when you lay hands on the person, no pushing, no shoving, no squeezing, no massaging, no rubbing. Jesus didn't do any of those. He simply made physical contact. And then he would exercise authority by giving commands with faith of God. And that's what we're going to do exactly. All right? So now, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I will lead you, and then you repeat these commands after me. And then, after we're done, then ask the person, how are you? Do you feel a difference? Is the pain gone? Are you ready? Okay, let's do this. Okay, lay hands on someone right where the pain is, exactly where the pain is, and keep your hand there. Here we go. Now repeat the following after me. And repeat this with faith of God. Repeat this with no doubt, with mountain-moving faith. Let's rebuke the enemy right now. Repeat this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke this pain. I command you to leave. In the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. 
right now. Any spirit of infirmity, leave. Now, I want you to speak with faith of God now, no doubts. I want you to speak with authority and faith of God and finality. Okay, repeat this after me. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Pain, go. Get out. I rebuke you. Any unclean spirit, leave. Be healed. Be restored. Jesus heals you. Right now. Be healed. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I am confident that some of you have been healed. Now, ask the person, how is the pain? How is the pain? Do they feel better? Has the pain gone? Now, I believe among those listening to me, some have been healed, and some are feeling some kind of difference. They're feeling better. And maybe some have felt nothing at all. Let's do it one more time. This is like moving a mountain. We command, it obeys. It's a process. Okay, one more time. Repeat after me. And this time, say this with faith of God, with authority, with power, with absolute finality, with no doubts. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, pain, go. Leave completely. Be healed. All pain, go. Spirit of infirmity, leave. Be healed. Be set free. Be restored. Jesus heals you. All pain, go. Right now. In the name of Jesus Christ. Be healed. Now, I'm confident that some of you who felt improvement before, now you're feeling more improvement. Now the pain is getting less and less and less. Now you can continue doing this after this session is over. I'd like to ask you to do something for me, however. Those of you who have felt God's power as we were doing this, you're feeling better or you're healed, the pain is gone, I want you to send me an email and tell me that you were healed or that you felt God's power and that you're feeling better. Let me give you my email address. It's Elijah003 at gmail.com. Once again, Elijah003 at gmail.com. Please send me a report, a testimony of what God did for you when someone laid hands on you and rebuked with faith of God. Now, for those of you who want to learn more, uh, this teaching is actually on the Internet. You can view or download the video. You just go to our website, which, as Shannon said before, is simply www.TheElijahChallenge. Three words. Excuse me, one word. TheElijahChallenge.org. You go there, just look around, and... Go to the link where it says uh, view video, training video. All right? You can download it. You can view it. And also, you can download a PowerPoint presentation with which you can teach this very basic training. Normally, when I teach the basic training, it is by PowerPoint. It's not simply uh, as I'm doing now, but it's by PowerPoint. So I invite you to visit the website. Uh, there's so much more. 
There are many articles there. And when you are trained to minister in the spirit and power of Elijah in this way, then any disciple can go out and preach the gospel and heal the sick and be part of God's army during these last days for fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, this is just session one, all right? The entire basic training can take up to 10 hours. This is only session one. You can go to our website and look at session two, session three, session four, session five, and so on. And we also have basic training two as well, which you can view and download from the Internet. But we thank you for joining us. It's really a pleasure to teach you. And now I'd like to hand the microphone back to Brother Shannon. Pastor Lau, praise God, what a fantastic two hours. I I wish it had not run out. This is awesome. (laughs) I would like to uh, welcome all of you um, to check out the MP3 if you got to the website a little bit late. We'll have it up in its entirety. Um, In about 15 minutes, you'll be able to download the whole thing in MP3 form. I would encourage you to go over to the ElijahChallenge.org, sign up to their mailing list, uh, start uh, going through their programs. If uh, they're holding a conference in your area, this is something you want to go out to and be a part of in person as well. And uh, Brother Lau, Brother, again, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on. You're welcome right. back anytime, and I look forward to having you on again real soon. Oh, thank you, would, Brother. Uh, would you close in prayer, Brother? Yes, yes, I'd be delighted to. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for your word, O oh God. And Lord, we know that your word is true, Father. And Father, I ask you to take this word, this seed, Lord, and cause it to grow in the hearts of your disciples where it has just been planted. Father, I ask you to give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may understand and grab hold of this word, this seed which has been planted, and begin to apply it. Father, I ask you to cause the seed to grow, to increase, to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times for your disciples, Lord, that they may be part of the army of God, which you are raising up during these last days in the spirit and power of Elijah to fulfill the Great Commission. And Father, I ask you to continue to bless my brother Shannon, Lord. I ask, Lord, that you would use him more and more, Lord, to equip your people for these last days, to prepare and to make ready a people prepared for the coming of the Lord during these last days. May you expand his ministry. May you use him, Lord, to equip and teach and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what you are doing, Lord, these days through your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for that loving kindness and grace, for saving us, and, Lord, for calling us into service for your kingdom. Thank you, Father for the glorious hope that we have, the glorious hope of eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we proclaim to the lost and to the Gentiles. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to Omega Man Radio. Special guest, William Lau of the Elijah Challenge, ElijahChallenge.org. God bless you, Brother Lau. Talk to you again real soon. Okay, my brother. Thank you. God bless bless you. you. I'd be delighted to come back anytime. Thank you, sir. Okay. You're welcome. Good night. Good night.